We did Peter in 2014. So we're going to do him again. And just for reference sake, when we get done with Peter, however long that takes, we will probably go to Zechariah. It's been a while since we've done Zechariah. So that is sort of next up on my plate. So Peter, the apostle with foot and mouth disease, always get a kick out of Peter, a Bible teacher that I used to listen to characterize Peter as ready, fire, aim. In other words, his mouth very often got ahead of his brain. Peter's the guy that Yeshua rebukes. Get thee behind me, Satan. That's a pretty strong rebuke. So Peter, he's gruff. He's a fisherman. He is not an educated man. He's enthusiastic, impulsive, and after the resurrection, he turns into something very different. If you read his speech in Acts, that's a really powerful, impromptu speech. The other part about Peter, as you remember, Yeshua told Peter before the crucifixion that he would deny him three times before the cock crows. And of course, Peter was saying, oh, no, Lord, I'll die to defend you and that kind of thing. And of course, you all know the story. He does deny him three times. And the interesting thing that then happens after the resurrection, when Yeshua has the disciples meet him on the Sea of Galilee, and Yeshua's there barbecuing fish, and he asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And what I have always taken that to be is Yeshua is backing out those three denials. And of course, once we get to Pentecost or Shavuot in the book of Acts, he becomes a very powerful preacher. The other thing about Peter is Peter and Paul obviously knew each other well. And for example, they saw each other at the Ephesian church and so forth. But Paul was given the Gentile franchise. And his job was to go out and talk to Gentiles and establish Gentile churches. And Peter was given the Hebrew franchise. And the reason it makes a difference is because as you read Paul's letters and Peter's letters, you have to read them differently. Because Paul is writing to predominantly Gentile churches, and so he's sort of talking in terms of Torah 101. In other words, he's talking to people who do not necessarily know the scriptures. Peter, on the other hand, is talking to Hebrews, and he assumes a knowledge of the scriptures that Paul does not assume. So he's writing here specifically to Hebrews. So if you pick up Peter in verse 1, I'm in 1 Peter 1, Peter, an apostle of Yeshua Messiah, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. For obedience to Yeshua Messiah and for the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So what he's writing to is the elect exiles of the dispersion. And there's a couple of thoughts on who these people are. First off, the area that he's writing to is north and east Turkey, up into southern Asia. The ten tribes that were scattered by the Assyrians were taken out in that direction. You remember the Assyrian exile 
I believe 700 and some odd BC, the Assyrian policy of conquest was when they conquered a people, they picked them up by the roots and moved them out so they would have no more connection to their land. If you keep them there connected to their land, you always have this idea of this is my land, patriotic fervor and so forth. And by picking them up and moving them out and replacing them with some other conquered people, in this case the Samaritans, what that did is it lessened the probability of rebellion. What you do is you destroy their history and their culture by moving them out and they cease to become a problem. Very much what has happened right now in the United States with the destruction of all the books and the destruction of the statues and all that kind of stuff. The United States is too big to move out, so what they're trying to do is destroy the culture in place. So when he says the elect exiles of the dispersion, what he very well could be talking about are the lost tribes, the ten tribes that got scattered. Because at this point, we are still prior to 70 AD. Because in 70 AD, what happened is the Romans came in and they dispersed the rest of the Jews, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and scattered the Jews all over. And by the way, Jews is correct, because predominantly the Hebrews in the land at the time of the gospel are from the tribe of Judah. But the ones in the dispersion would be called Hebrews, not necessarily Jews. So he's writing to geographic area, which is the area through which and perhaps to which the ten tribes would have been scattered some 700 years prior. And what that tells me is, if that's correct, that they still keep track of those folks. One of the things that I'm sure you all know is that when Israel came back into the land in 48, one of the things that they did is they launched a project to go out along the route that the ten tribes were dispersed and find remnants of the ten tribes. In fact, there are movies about it, there are History Channel specials about it, etc. And they have found Hebrew tribes as far away as Thailand. In fact, one of the tribes in the Kashmir Pass between Pakistan and India, they believe is Hebrew. And what they find is tribes of people who are ethnically distinct that don't remember their heritage, but they still eat clean, they still observe a whole bunch of customs and so forth. And so then they started doing DNA tests on them. And what they discovered is that these were, in fact, Hebrews that had been scattered. So here in First Peter, this is 2,000 years ago from where we are today. It's 700 years from when the dispersion was, but 2,000 years from us. So if they are finding remnants of the dispersion across the band, across southern Asia, they found tribes in India, for example, Thailand. And if they're finding them now, after 2,700 years, I suspect that they knew them 2,000 years ago. But the point is, 
he is writing to those who were elect exiles of the dispersion. The Gentiles would not be dispersed. Paul, when he writes to the churches in that same area, Galatia and so forth, doesn't refer to them as the elect of the dispersion. They are Gentiles. So he's writing to Hebrews. And as I said at the beginning of this, as you read this, you need to read it differently than Paul because Peter assumes the knowledge of the scriptures in his audience. So he doesn't go into the detail that Paul goes into because Paul is writing to Gentiles who he does not assume know the scriptures. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua Messiah. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Yeshua Messiah from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. All right, that's going to take some unpacking, and we may not get out of there tonight. So the first thing is, obviously, he's talking about the resurrection, and he's talking about the resurrection having obtained for them an inheritance. And by the way, that is a theme that was in Colossians, and that's a theme that's in Ephesians, that the Holy Spirit in Ephesians, for example, is a guarantee of our inheritance. So the idea that the resurrection of Yeshua would guarantee an imperishable inheritance to these people is consistent with what Paul says. I don't think that's controversial. So undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, what is this inheritance that is kept in heaven for them, and does that mean that you have to go to heaven to get it? The example I would use is, for those of you who have a bank account, you keep your money in a bank account, but you don't have to live in the bank to use your inheritance, right? So the fact that your inheritance is being kept in heaven doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go to heaven to get it. So that takes us to Revelation. So let's go to Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. This is the end of Revelation after the reformation of all things. Had the tribulation, had the thousand-year reign. This is the end of this creation and the beginning of a new one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So if Peter is writing to Hebrews, and if he is saying their inheritance is being kept for them in heaven, what I am suggesting to you is their inheritance that is being kept is the new Jerusalem. And what Revelation says is it's up in heaven, and when the new creation starts, it will drop down from heaven and come down to the new earth. And if you go on and read here in Revelation, what you find is that it is peopled by Hebrews. All 12 tribes. So what Peter is saying here is he is assuring them of an inheritance by the resurrection of Yeshua. And he's saying that inheritance is being stored for you, being kept, imperishable, where nobody can mess it up. It's in heaven. That's what Peter says. 
And what I'm saying to you is revelation is the fruition of that note by Peter. Now, moving along, because it gets more fun. So according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Yeshua Messiah from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time, then, but future. So this, this salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. So in context, then, what I'm seeing is that this salvation that is being promised is not a salvation that happens on this earth, but is a salvation that happens in the new heaven and the new earth. So verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Yeshua Messiah. When is it going to be found to result in praise and glory and honor? At the revelation. And I'm assuming the revelation we are talking about is the second coming. So at the second coming, their faith, which is tested through various trials and is proven genuine and is more precious than gold may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Yeshua Messiah. Who gets the praise, the glory, and the honor? I'm saying that they get the glory and the honor. Let's try it again. I'm in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, the which is is not there, that's my insertion. So the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by the fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Yeshua Messiah. So what I am reading that to mean is at the return of Yeshua, these people whose faith has been tested and found genuine and whose faith is more precious than gold will be honored by him. The comment was that he has a slight disconnect in that the second coming, according to Revelation, is a thousand years or more, actually, before the arrival of the new Jerusalem. He's going to reign for a thousand years, and then we're going to have a big battle. And So I'm not sure exactly what the time interval is between his return and the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, but it's at least a thousand years. Your comment was, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If their inheritance is in the new Jerusalem, then how are they being honored at the return of Yeshua when they don't get their inheritance for a thousand years. Yeah, that, that doesn't bother me a bit. Because one of the things that's going to happen is, if you remember from Thessalonians, uh, when Yeshua comes back, those who died in him are going to be raised from the dead. And they're going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. 
So the idea that these Hebrew believers would be raised from the dead at the return of Messiah and be given honor for their faithfulness, even though they don't get their final inheritance for a thousand years, I don't see as a disconnect. Just as I read the scriptures, they got stuff to do during that thousand years. They're not just sort of sitting around on their blessed assurance. So they're busy. They got stuff to do. And at the end of that time, there's going to be a great battle. Satan is finally going to be defeated. The whole thing is going to be rolled up like a scroll. And then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. The new Jerusalem is going to come down. And those Hebrews are going to populate the new Jerusalem at that time. There's going to be two resurrections. The first resurrection happens at the second return of Christ. And the people who are raised in that resurrection are those who died believing in him. So they are his Talmudin, his disciples. They're the ones that are raised and they're the ones that are doing stuff during the thousand year reign. I mean, you've got Abraham, you've got David, you've got all of these righteous people. And my guess is that they will be included in that first resurrection. But I don't know that. The thousand-year reign is where Messiah himself reigns on the earth. And Satan is turned loose for a while. And the purpose of the thousand-year reign, at least as I understand it, and this is not stated in Scripture, this is my understanding, is to prove that even Messiah himself ruling the place is not sufficient to change some human hearts. There are still going to be people who are going to gravitate to Satan because Satan is going to deceive the nations and they are going to form armies and they are going to come up against the Messiah in Jerusalem. So the idea here is sort of, how would I describe it? I was talking to my number two son the other day, and number two son is a bright guy, and he gives people more of the benefit of the doubt than I do. And so he looks at these people who are doing socialism, and they say, well, these are sincere people. And I say, some of them, in fact, are stupid and duped, but the ones that run it are not. They know exactly what they're doing. And what socialism is, is a satanic counterfeit for Torah. In other words, the platitudes that it says, we're going to you know, make sure nobody starves, everybody's going to have an income, it's all going to be nice and equal, there won't be any more of this nasty stuff that goes on under capitalism. That sounds on the surface very much like Torah. But it is a satanic counterfeit which is designed to do what it always does, which is to cause misery and death. That's what it always does. And the thing that makes it so attractive, and, and one of the things I said to him is, in the late 19th century, within the Jewish community in Europe, there was a lively discussion about whether or not we should go for Zionism, which means get us all back to our land, or whether we should go to for socialism and bring heaven to earth. This was a discussion among Jews at that point, and the reason for that is they have been inculcated in Torah, and the gab that goes with socialism 
on the surface sounds very Torah-like. The idea is we're smart people and we are of goodwill and we can make this work. And that's what is being said by socialists in this country right now. It just hasn't been done by the right people. And so that is always the catechism of socialism and why it's so attractive. What the second reign does is you have a perfect government. It's under the Messiah himself. It just doesn't get any more perfect than that. And it is being administered by his disciples. So in all respects, from a human point of view, this should be perfect. But what we find at the end of a thousand years is Satan is still able to grab a hold of and corrupt human beings, which shows that we cannot be perfected on this earth, and the only thing that will perfect us is Yeshua's circumcision of the heart. That's my idea of why the thousand-year reign. Do with that whatever you like. During that reign, there will be people who have the opportunity to come into the kingdom of God, absolutely. And there will probably be some that fall away. So seven and a half again. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Yeshua Messiah. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now we are using salvation in a different context here. Because remember back up in verse four and a half, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So that salvation, if you will, is national salvation for Israel, and they get parked in the New Jerusalem. The salvation being talked about in verse 9 is the salvation of your soul, which happens when you switch sides from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of God. So the salvation referred to in 1 Peter 1.5 is ready to be revealed in the last time because that's the one that is going to happen when the new heaven and the new earth and their inheritance comes down and they live in the new Jerusalem and that is salvation, if you will, of the nation Israel. Down here in verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So that says that when you love him and change sides from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life, you are born again and your soul is saved even though the salvation of the nation is going to wait for some period of time. I just wanted to point out that the word salvation is used for two different things in the same paragraph. In the first case it's used for salvation of the nation when they get their inheritance. In the second case it's used for salvation of one's individual soul when you come to Messiah. Verse 10, concerning this salvation 
The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Now, I am assuming the salvation we're talking about here is personal. And one of the things that we are talking about, and I have done this every time we've gone through Ephesians or or Corinthians, is there were mysteries that God set up before the foundation of the earth. And those mysteries were not revealed until the resurrection of Yeshua. And the mystery was that Gentiles would be fellow heirs to the Hebrews. And that's in Ephesians 3 and 1 Corinthians 2. Paul is talking about a mystery, and the mystery is in Corinthians, it says that principalities and powers had understood that the Gentiles were going to be able to come in when Yeshua raised from the dead, they never would have crucified him. You've all been through that lots of times. I'm not going to go through that in detail right now. Peter, to the Hebrews, he's not talking about a mystery because the Hebrews were always going to be in the kingdom of God. They were God's chosen people. And what God did was a series of swaps. He traded firstborn of Egypt for the nation Israel. Remember, as he was talking back in Exodus 5 or 6 to Moses, he says, go tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn. Turn loose my firstborn or I will take your firstborn. And of course, Pharaoh doesn't turn them loose voluntarily. So God redeems his firstborn at the cost of the firstborn of Egypt. So the fact that the Hebrews were going to be part of the kingdom of God has been known since at least the Exodus. So it's not a mystery. And so when the principalities and powers are doing their bit with killing the Messiah, they aren't worried about the Hebrews because the Hebrews are already God's people. But when all of a sudden by doing that, you've got the Gentiles come in, you have compounded your problem tremendously if you're a demon. That's why it was a mystery. So what Peter is saying here is the prophets who prophesied before knew what was going to happen, that the Messiah had to come, the Messiah had to suffer, so forth, and they longed to know when that was going to happen. And what Peter is saying here is that the Spirit revealed to them that this message was not for them, but it was for the addressees of the letter. Let's try it again. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating what he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in these things. What's going on here, it is God's policy that humanity has been given dominion over the earth. He gave it to us back in Genesis 1. That's never been revoked. We are the ones with dominion over the earth. Now, We screwed up and we allowed ourselves to be taken hostage by Satan 
So Satan has been hiding behind us for 6,000 years, but we still have dominion. In fact, that's why demons want to get access to people because people have voices and hands and people have the ability to act and say and do things on the earth that the demon doesn't directly have the acts able to do. And it's God's policy that since he gave us dominion over the place, we run it. Don't get me wrong now. I'm saying this is God's policy. I am not saying that it's a limitation on God. If God wanted to change that policy, he could change that policy and there's nothing we could do about it. Everybody clear on that. This is God's policy, the way he behaves, not something that's imposed upon him by a human being. So his policy is that he acts through people. So when the water gets turned into blood, Moses has to stand up there with his rod. And once Moses stands up there with his rod and does his thing, then he releases God's power, which turns the water into blood. It's not Moses' power, it's God's power. Moses is simply the switch that allows the power to come down to earth. So, starting in the garden, where God prophesied that the seed of the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. So that's a messianic prophecy, predicting Yeshua. But in order to get from there to the birth of Messiah, what God had to do, and again, this is his choice, understand, it's his policy. So what God had to do was get prophets to speak about all of the things that were to happen so that when it finally did happen, everything that was going to happen had been spoken by people so that God's power was then released to do what it is. And then, of course, when Yeshua comes back, it will not be necessary for him to get prophets to say things because Yeshua himself is a man. He is also God. And so now you have the unification of the authority on earth of a man with the power of God through the Holy Spirit by the voice of Yeshua. So back now to 1 Peter 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and acquired carefully. In other words, they were saying things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that they didn't understand. And the reason they were saying these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, even though they didn't understand what they meant, is because God wanted a man to say these things so that the voice of a man with that authority of a man on earth would be out there and would then give him something to work with as he acted through history. And that is what Peter is talking about here. So now let's read it again with that thought in mind. So verse 10 again. Concerning this salvation, which is the salvation of the Hebrew diaspora, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. By the way, the grace that was to be yours. These are Hebrews. The grace that goes to the Gentiles was a mystery. So the grace that goes to the Hebrews is prophesied, but the grace that comes to the Gentiles was a mystery. I will get through this verse. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you 
through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Again, he is writing to somebody who understands the prophets. He doesn't explain, well, Isaiah said this and all that. Paul would have a whole bunch of scriptural references and so forth. Peter assumes they know this. 